there. You are listening to the Quarter to Three Games podcast for the week of July 11th, 2013. My name is Tom Chick, and my game of the week is not Mech Brigade. Yeah. Hello, gamers. My name is Bruce Garrick, and my game of the week is not Second Life, The Furry Chronicles. Hi, everyone. My name is Eric Lee Smith. And my game of the week is not War in the East. Oh, poor Ooh. War in the East. That's me. Wow, that was harsh. Yeah, to slam a competitor like that, Eric Lee Smith, I'm very oh. disappointed in you. <laughs> You're assuming I'm referring to that version. I'm talking about oh. the original by SPI. Oh, SPI, yeah. yeah. Very appropriate. Yeah. Very Old appropriate. School. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I, I hope this isn't a tasteless segue, Eric, but speaking of old school... Uh, you uh, have been at this for a while, this game design thing, uh, but I think you're also, in a weird way, at this cutting edge of what I like to think of as the new hotness for wargaming. Um, mm-hmm. As far as what you guys at Shenandoah Studios have done with specifically Battle of the Bulge, but more generally, this idea of the iPad as a, as a wargaming platform... Um, so before we talk about what what you have going now, there's a Kickstarter that I know Bruce and I want to talk to you about. I think Bruce and I want to clear something up. We we heard something that I find personally distressing, uh, and I don't know if it's true, and I want to ask you about this. Uh, on another podcast, another developer sort of casually mentioned off the cuff that Battle of the Bulge w- was not very successful. That, you know, critically, people <laughs> loved it, that you, you uh, did some cool new things with Wargaming, but that it wasn't a commercial success for Shenandoah Studios. I, I'm not prying for any sort of information about your finances or how much it made, but what I want to know is, please say it ain't so. <laughs> no, it's. Um, I'll be happy to talk to that point directly. Um I'll just give you some examples. We expected the game to get 20 reviews in its first month. We got uh, 20 reviews in its first week. Um, we launched on December 13th, and we um, were a startup company. And by the end of December, it had generated enough revenue to take our company to cash flow positive. Um, we were cash flow positive the next month as well. It has, um, you know, we're a startup and we're a uh, a, um, you know, an angel-backed startup company. Huh? So when you do that, you have to do financial projections, taking you out three years. And Battle of the Bulge has been so successful that we have actually we actually underestimated the revenue of the game by about twenty, fifteen to twenty percent. And that just never happens. Startups never underestimate their success because to be an entrepreneur you have to be an optimist and so we had the happy occasion of actually being able to go back to our investors and said well we have to revise everything up <laughs> good that's awesome news I'm, I'm i i doubted when i heard that uh and i'm glad to hear that's not the case um now it's been, uh, a, it's, been tr- it's been a it's been a tremendous success in the um the spontaneous um following that it's developed around tournaments and sites such as your own are also unexpected mm-hmm. and wonderful and now are part of our plans as well. So it's been very uh, exciting. Bruce, you were instrumental in helping along this uh, t- 
tournament that we had uh, at quarter to three. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about how that went? And uh, did, I, I'm sorry, I don't know this. Is there a winner? Like we had a winner, right? There sure was. Uh, the winner was um, uh, Madafu87, who is Bruce S. Uh, he is an excellent player. He has beat me multiple times. Um, uh, Dave Perkins, who's um, runs a lot of leagues on quarter to three, uh, was kind enough to run some sort of like league format, just kind of re- repeating um, uh, games um, in sort of a round robin um, format. And uh, Matafu87 is consistently in the top of those. Um, so I think we got a very uh, a very worthy winner. Now the the tournament, I thought, well. You know, how many people can we get into a tournament? And I did, you know, I had really no idea. You know, we tried initially. I just made a little post on quarter to three, and we managed to get, uh, you know, I think sixteen players to um, to do a little mini tournament. And uh, I, I wrote to uh, Eric and said, "Hey, you know, would you be willing to sponsor a larger tournament? I'm not sure if I can get everybody." And um, Eric said, "Yeah, hey, you know, the the." Um, top, you know, you'll commit, uh, commit prizes and prize money to the tournament, you know, proportional to how many people play. And of course, in another case of underestimation, he said, you know, in our top would be uh, 64 players. And uh, so, of course, you know, we blew through that. And uh, you know, I still have I had made a, a separate email, and uh, between people posting to quarter to three and people sending emails to that. Um, to that registration email, I had far more than 64. Unfortunately, I didn't get to 128, so I couldn't include everybody. But um, that's just another another example of how the tournament uh, sort of out, outstripped expectations. Mm-hmm. Bruce, did you compete in this tournament? I did not compete in the uh, in the bigger tournament. I felt that with uh, with actual money on the line, it might be unseemly if I ended up winning. Of course, there was no ended up being no chance of that. I uh, I got bounced from the original from the very from the sixteen player tournament in you know, the second or third round. But um, but I I was glad to see uh, I was glad to see how people how people stuck to it. We didn't we basically had of sixty four players. We only had one person that sort of just disappeared and stopped playing his games, which is you know uh, reasonable. I mean it's it's a game things happen but just to have only one person who doesn't uh who ends up dropping out and everybody else playing to completion and and uh doing it doing so uh courteously is uh is really amazing mm-hmm. uh I, I think war gamers are a, generally a more genteel uh, customer base i'm guessing than other video games maybe, maybe that's part of it uh uh, Eric, tell me a bit about. Uh, I actually haven't played since you guys made some major changes to Battle of the Bulge, and I'd like to hear briefly about what those were and what was behind um, making them. Uh, tell us what changes have been made since the game came out. Well, we um, we've made incremental changes. We haven't made major changes. The game, if you played it when it came out and you played it now, you would recognize it as exactly the same game. That said, we we have made minor adjustments to um, the AI. Each time we do a release, we put in some additional um, intelligence in there so it better understands supply lines and better understands uh, longer-term planning and things like that. But more importantly, we've we've um, we've added in um, you know in-app purchases. We added in a new scenario, and we're, what we're trying to do a startup's job is to learn. So. What we're doing is is adding in things where we're going to learn. Is there, you know, do will wargamer support in-app purchases, or is it the wrong thing to do on a on a premium game? Mm-hmm. You know, is the iPhone important? We are going to launch an iPhone version. In fact, it's really cool. 
Um, I'm very excited about it. I think it's because I play a lot on the train with my iPad, and but I don't have my iPad around all the time, so having the iPhone allows you to do your turns over Game Center. And we've done, you know, we've done some other things. Um, but but specifically, specifically the one though that that uh, that caught my eye was: Aren't you allowing for is it is it randomized starting locations yeah. or yeah. yeah that that seems to me like quite a bear because there's there's a lot of elegance in terms of the setup. Uh, it seemed like you guys, in a way, your your philosophy was: We're not super concerned about being ultra historical. We're more concerned with, with balance and playability, uh, and to allow for that to be randomized. Uh, I just haven't had the time to try it out yet, but I thought that that was a pretty bold step, it seemed to yeah, me. Yeah, it, it, it was actually, um, the idea, I think, came from one of our playtesters, and we thought, well, that's an interesting idea, um, and you'll have some games that'll, where the startup will be, you know, where the pieces will be randomized in a kind of a wacky way that hampers the Germans or or that or the Axis or, or that, you know, gets you a different feel, and... I think it's been fairly popular. It's it's um, it's not, it's not my personal interest because I, I like the historical stuff a lot. But there's a lot of players. We're getting players that are new to wargaming, and for them, the the variety is really important because they don't care that the you know <laughs> that the, that this particular unit was in this particular space, right? They they want variety, so it's 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 proven popular. Mm-hmm. Well, it also gives the. Um it gives the uh, player a handicap sometimes, which uh, you know, once you've learned the system and are really good at the you know the basic scenarios, that uh, I think gives the game a little bit more longevity. You also have a, a game uh, called Endgame, uh, yeah. which is basically takes over sort of at the German high watermark, and uh, that's an interesting one. What what um, what brought you to to kind of go to add it that way? Well, we you know we looked at adding. Um, a few different things to bulge and the, the additional scenario and the ability to uh, continue the game. Um, and again, the continuing the game idea, the bitter end, uh, to play the bitter end of the game, is uh, was actually uh, came from uh, people on Quarter and Three and other sites. They said, wow, I was only lost by one point and I think I could have won it on the next turn. And so we added that feature in and that's that's really popular. And it's, it's again, it surprises me that there's so many people do like to play all the way to the end because a full game of bulge uh, can take quite a few hours if you're doing it asynchronously over Game Center. Personally, I, I spend weeks on games. I, I I try to keep I usually keep between four and eight games going in at a time and. Yeah, you know, this will stretch out for a month. Some of them. If I, I had one I lost just uh, two weeks ago, um, that I was, I was, um, I was behind. You know, I was at the end of the twenty seventh. I needed one point to win as a as the axis, but victory is determined at the end. The next morning, I got. The, I would have gotten the point. <laughs> <laughs> Which you know, I'm so I, I, close to winning. And I love that a, you, you know, six weeks long or something like that. I love that you added that stuff in, Eric, but I, I'm like you. I sort of feel like, look, if you can't make the points to win by the deadline, there's, you know, you don't get to keep playing the game after you've lost or, or, or won, really. It's like if you're playing a football game or something, you don't get to add a fifth quarter to see how many points you would have gotten in that fifth quarter. Uh, but I guess I'm just taking a, a more of a rules-based approach to, to my wargaming, I suppose. Um, I, you know what? It seems like some people kind of want to add a little sandboxiness or, or some flexibility, I guess. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm glad you guys 
at least recognize that, even if I have, even if that's not my bag. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, what you're doing next, um, I, I want to actually ask you about your overall approach to designing more games, and maybe you can use this to segue into telling us what you're doing next. Uh, there's a Kickstarter going. We'll, we'll talk a bit yeah. about this. But the impression I get from playing Battle of the Bulge, as someone who used to play war games and sort of fell out of favor with them, and I, it, uh, or they fell out of favor with me, it's not really a genre that I kept up with. Um, when I go, when I play Battle of the Bulge, I get this sense that you guys at Shenandoah use almost this modern-day school of thought that, that we see in tabletop board gaming. And you're doing that, you're, you're appealing to that more than you're appealing to traditional war gaming as a way to make this war game accessible to a wider range of people. You know, I see, rather than a lot of fussiness with hexes, I see this, this Euro game appeal, where uh, this influence where there's more abstraction, there's more simple math, uh, there's a priority of elegance, sometimes even over and above theming. Um, so I get the sense that you guys are, are bringing to wargaming a kind of a Eurogame influence. Uh, would you say that's accurate? And how does that apply to going what you, you, the projects that you're going forward with? Well, yes, I would say that's accurate, but that's only part of the story. So, yes, we're informed by Euro games were one of the great things that happened to me in my life. I, you know, I was a fairly early adopter in the mid 90s of playing Euro games and I buy, buy them and play them frequently and I love them as do all of our people in our company. So that's an important idea. But I think more importantly is the iPad. The iPad was launched on April 30th, uh, 2010. That's the weekend that the Wi-Fi version launched and I bought it on the Saturday it came out. And by Monday I decided I got a, quit my current career in software development and go start a game company because it's specifically the kinds of things you can do on a touch-based device that scrolls and moves so rapidly that will really allow you to do take the kind of games that we love of and transform them into experiences that are open enough for average people to get into them. Mm-hmm. Bulge is actually a sophisticated war game. I mean, it, if you go in there and read the rule book, uh, you know, it's a 12-page Little book, and it's it's got some surprises in there. Some people don't realize, you know, some of the sophistication around uh, the bridge interdiction and where the out where the American reinforcements uh, enter. Uh, we just pu- published a, a player guide uh, to it recently to our Kickstarter, and it for me, even me, I've been playing the game a lot. I learned things by reading the player guide. I'm like, wow, oh my <laughs> goodness, what are the implications of some of this stuff? So yeah, now I want to tackle this question of area to hex for a second. Because that worries me, by the way, Eric. When you say that yeah. in the Kickstarter, I'm like, oh, God, no, we're, we were just moving away from hexes. Don't go backwards. <laughs> well, if, if you're going back to hexes where you had to do all the math yourself, then that's a big problem. But if you if you take what, a, again, if you design a game from the beginning for the iPad and take the work out of it, then what the hexagons allow you to do is do things like ranged fire and and more historically accurate movement and uh, really allow you to analyze the terrain in a more detailed way. And the iPad takes away the complexity of the, of the mechanics of that, which on paper gaming I love, but I recognize the overhead's very high. And they do turn off people, especially the games, like I'm a big fan of Russian front games, and you know, you know, my mind, you know, boggles on some of them. Uh, just the amount of 
different kinds of terrain effects that happen with combinations with weather and so forth. The overhead's very high. But we are convinced that the overhead can be essentially taken out of the player's hands and put on the, the iPad and so that they deal with the kind of strategies that, um, that you do in Bulge. For example, in Gettysburg, um, you know, you're going to have an activation. Let's say it's a Confederate activation, and they get to move a Confederate division. That might be six, six playing pieces. So in Bulge, the difference in bulges, you'd have up to three in a sp- single area. And here you might have six across several hexes. But that's all you deal with is six pieces, right? And you don't deal with combat. You just move them. Then your turn's over. And then the next group gets to move. And it could be a Union group. It could be a Confederate group. That's defined randomly. So you never know who's going to be moving next. You also don't know when the combat is actually going to be resolved. So combat is separate from movement, and it happens in a in a uh, random time uh, unless a player has the initiative. If a player has the initiative, for example, at Gettysburg when Robert E. Lee actually shows up on the field, which happens in the middle of the afternoon on day one, they, they gain the initiative, and suddenly the Confederate player has only one thing he can do that's different than the Union player, and that is he gets to decide when his combat phase occurs. So it gives him a little bit of control mm-hmm. to line up and try to launch an assault, a more organized assault. Unfortunately for the Confederates, they lose that <laughs> later in the battle. Um, things like that, I think, are going to make the game very popular, and I think they'll open up hex-based gaming to a new audience also. Uh, I One of the things that makes me reluctant to see you guys use hexes, and I want to talk about some of that uh, command and control stuff that you talked about in a moment, um, but one of my favorite things about Battle of the Bulge uh, was how much personality you managed to put into the map by having area control and the way the areas fit together, the way they were discrete types of terrain, the way the roads threaded them together. Uh, I, I did a, an article, and you, some of you guys participated, where I asked people, well, you know, what's your favorite territory from Battle of the Bulge? And I feel like that's something that really you can only do with an area-based game because the territory is a discrete unit. Uh, and I worry that some of that might be lost with your Gettysburg game. Well, so, you can really like Hex 0806. <laughs> I'm partial to Hex 0804. I mean, it's real trendy. 0806, yeah, you know, that's that's the new hotness. But us, yeah, us old school people, 0804 is where it's at. Uh, so, but I know that you guys care deeply about the map and how to do the map, and, and you've certainly talked a bit about on your Kickstarter page. Uh, you know, you have this lovely traditional map of the Gettysburg battlefield. Um, tell me a bit about how you're going to preserve some of that personality with a hex-based game, where you're just sort of laying hexes over the topography. Uh, so, how are you going to keep that much personality in the game? So the, the basic answer to that is we, we, we haven't yet finished the um, concept art. We're still working on that. But the basic idea is the hexes, don't you don't see the hexes at all until, a un, until you touch a unit for its movement, and then it shows the range in which it can move. Mm-hmm. But so it's not going to be uh, a field of hexagons all over the board. The board will look like um, almost like a 19th century uh, etching. And again, we're working on various concepts of how that will look. And the units will not be will probably not be squares like they are in bulge, traditional counters. They will probably be done as, as bars so that when a, a, a group of units are in a ah. line, they'll actually make... So it'll actually look like, like the maps that you see there in the, in the Kickstarter where it'll look like a, a 19th century map of the battle. 
And when you zoom in and you touch a unit to move, it'll just show you the areas you can move, and you touch the area that moves, and it just moves there. And then the hexes go away. Uh-huh. So it's gonna. So the, you're, most of the time, you're going to experience the battle without a hex grid. It's going to look like a naturalistic 19th century kind of naturalism rendering of the map. I think it's going to be spectacular. And again, we have our two talented artists are working on it now. And uh, I mean, it gives me shivers to see some of the stuff they're doing. It's really cool. Now, now have you, um, Eric, played any of Bowen Simmons' uh, Napoleonic games that kind of do that same Kriegspiel look? Uh, like Napoleon at Marengo or Napoleon's Triumph about uh, yeah. Austerlitz? Yes, I have. And um, I like, you know, I, in general, I like the approach that he took. I thought it was a, a, a breathtakingly original way um, of designing a game. In fact, you know, his comments are that that's kind of his idea was that the, if you step back, it looks like a 19th century rendering of a battlefield. And mm-hmm. the game... You know, looks like that when you play it, and I think that's a real part of his success with that system. Um, so yeah, that's a that's a very good example of, of what we're talking about. To my knowledge, it hasn't been done the way we're going to do it, but that that's a similar approach with with uh, a board a board game. Now, sorry, Tom, I, I just was going to follow on that. Was the you you already have a series of uh, ball? Uh, sorry, of. Um, Civil War board games that you released uh, called, was called Cross Five Aprils, correct? That's correct, yeah. And uh, is that system, because you had actually made a comment about how Cross Five Aprils was the uh, Duke Nukem of war games because uh, you announced <laughs> a Cross Five Aprils 2 uh, yeah. was on your webpage and yeah. then yeah. didn't really ever appear. Yeah, I got it got swept up in my career in software development. I've uh-huh. spent you know two decades actually designing financial services software. Mm-hmm. So it, it kind of got lost in the in the surge of a of another startup that I did in the '90s that turned out to be quite successful and uh, took all my time. Mm-hmm. But yes, uh, Cross Five Aprils was a, a you know a game of mine that had a, the you know the chip pick system was largely popularized by it. Mm-hmm. Although I came out with a chip pick system with my Panzer Command game earlier back in uh, 1995, mm-hmm. but but it was a very successful game and it's you know a Brigade level, similar to um, Gettysburg, the Tide Turns. The uh, game is Gettysburg, the Tide Turns is actually different. It's a different you know game system, mm-hmm. um, but it's it's a, it, it's it's a similar complexity level. It doesn't have leaders. It doesn't have supply rules. It's you know it's a similar kind of level of complexity. So mm-hmm. from a board gamer's perspective, the Gettysburg, the Tide Turns is going to be on the low the lower side of complexity. Mm-hmm. From a newbie game player side, it's going to be like, wow, this is the most, you know, this is a real sophisticated game. Mm-hmm. But that's just because we old, old style board game, you know, board war gamers are used to having very, very sophisticated games. Right. Uh, you mentioned on the Kickstarter page one of the upper level uh, uh, tiers, or mid level, mid to upper level tiers. Uh, you're offering a uh, a physical analog copy of the game, like a, a board game. Of Gettysburg uh, yeah. for, for supporters. So this also exists as a physical board game. Uh, you oh, guys sure. prototype yeah. that way, I presume. Yes, we we part of our core uh, strategy as a company is we will not um, even entertain the idea of publishing a game that is not um, a board game and has been tested as a board game and proven to be fun <laughs> before we write one line of code. So that's a core principle of ours. So yes, um, I've got the rules. The rules exist. The counters exist. We're 
the charts and tables exist. We're playing it. I'm actually playing. Oh, this this will interest your audience, I think. So one of my very first lessons I learned when I first arrived at, uh, at SPI I was in college, and I was you know 20 years old, and I'd go in on Friday night play testing, and I remember they were play testing a new game called Next War, which is this big monster game of of the of the invasion of a uh, um, you know Germany by the Soviet Union. Uh, the invasion of the West, a World War III game, and but they were using this tiny piece of map. The map was, you know, eight inches square around Berlin, and I and I went in and I talked to Jim Dunningham, and I said, Jim, what, what is what is? It? I thought Next War was going to be this huge game, and he said, Well, it is. I said, Well, what's this? He goes, This is Next War. He said, <laughs> If I can get the system working on this eight-inch square piece of ground, then it'll work on the two-map game. And I went, and I never forgot that. So what I do also is I design. Um, now, Gettysburg, I'm not, I haven't been working on Gettysburg. I've been trying to get Pea Ridge and Bentonville working, small games. I start off with Bentonville because you can play it, you know, start to finish in an hour. Mm-hmm. So you work on the game system and, and, the, and work on the combat system, and you test it and test it, and then you then you move over to Pea Ridge, which you can play in three hours, right? And it works for Pea Ridge, which is, takes two days of battle and includes night and includes more additional rules, and it'll probably work for Gettysburg. And so we're now, I'm now moving on to the Gettysburg and the testing on that. And that's what a professional does, or at least that's one of the pr- practices that professionals do, is to actually work out the kinks of their game system on a smaller, smaller section or a smaller battle, uh, and then go at it incrementally. Mm-hmm. Well, I have a, I, since you brought the two things. First of all, uh, Pea Ridge and, and Bentonville are are both in across by April. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay, that's right. so. Um, and then uh, I just want to bring up the whole next war thing because that, that game I have a copy um, that I've never played, uh, but uh, quite valuable the, by the way. Yeah, it's worth yeah. it's worth a lot of money. Uh, uh, what is next war by the way? For those that say that sounds like some awesome sci-fi thing. Uh, it's, it's just a, a, yeah. Go ahead. It's a world war. It's a World War Three simulation of a massive invasion of West Germany, uh, driving all the way to France by the Soviet Union, set in about 1985. And it's probably, the map is probably, I don't know, what would you say, three by four feet square, 2,000 yeah. counters. Mm-hmm. It's a massive, yeah. mon- it's a monster game. It's also the most profitable game SPI ever published other than Lord of the Rings. It's a Mark really? Herman design. Mark Herman and Jim Dunnigan design, actually. I, I want to play this. Bruce, let's play right, let's play as soon as we <laughs> stop recording. Yeah. Come over tonight, Bruce. Let's play this next war thing. Exactly. Uh, so I cut you off. Go ahead. So now that, so uh, P. Ridge, Bentonville, next, I just, uh, next war. So the next war thing that kills me because you were talking about playtesting testing next war and apparently you guys didn't really get that far because I was reading the next I haven't pulled it, the game out in years but um, I always remembered when I was looking through the designer because there's a separate book of like designers notes and, and scenarios mm-hmm. and in there there's a note from the designers that says hey if you ever play this game to the end could you write to us and tell us like what <laughs> happened or like what you know how, if you think it was balanced or like you know what what who captured what or because we never really got that far which I thought was uh, hilarious yes yeah that was the uh, uh, truth and advertising that's um, that's Jim and Redmond that they that comes straight from those guys. They did truth in advertising. I, and the funny thing is, people did write in. People did play it all the way to the end, and it ended up working. It was a successful game, very successful game. Not my taste, by the way, but I, but I, I was influenced just by watching Jim how he's designing. I was amazed by this little sketch map and, and, and how sophisticated a game he was designing for an eight by eight piece of paper. Hmm. It was phenomenal. Well, well, Eric, you have uh, you have your, your Kickstarter going right now, and I'm guessing that right about the moment this uh, podcast posts, you guys will have hit your goals, 
and <laughs> you still will have, I think, like three weeks to go. Um, I think so, four, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. So uh, it's uh, congratulations, by the way, I just want to mm-hmm. say. Um, from a higher level perspective, so you guys do Battle of the Bulge, you've got El Alamein in the works, and uh, that's, that's sort of been delayed as you're reworking your approach to it, which sounds awesome to me, by the way. Um, tell me why you would then do an American Civil War game. Well, the um, you know, we're not a we're not a World War II game company. We're a game company, so <laughs> there are there are certain classic topics, and basically, there are a couple of answers. You know, you're the CEO of the company, and you have a something you've always wanted to do all your life, and you get another chance to do it. Um, I want to do it. You know, I I did when I was in my twenties. I designed all the games I ever really wanted to do, uh, the Civil War and Ambush, and you know, and others, and Cross Five Aprils. Uh, and others, the Alamo, and now I get to do it on the iPad and on the iPhone and on other touch devices, we hope. Um, so it was an opportunity to do you know, Gettysburg, and we have other games that we have in our, you know, that we've signed contracts with that are not yet announced. But uh, yeah, we have a lot of ambition. We're we're gonna we're gonna, you know, our our goal really is to become a uh, a successful studio. And we're growing very rationally. We have a second development team, so we're going to be working on two lines of games at once. We have, we hope to have a third development team in place by the end of this year, so we'll have three lines of games going. And the work on that third line is going to start. The design work is starting fairly soon, actually, from a uh, conceptual basis, um, not in the development in terms of software, but the, the board game version is coming very soon. So that's what we're doing, and we expect to be at, at some point in the not-too-distant future working at five, six games at a time. Uh, that's what I grew up with. You know, SPI and Avalon Hill and other board game companies always had a lot of games going on, and it helped fuel a whole hobby. And we're just one of many game companies on, on iOS, but there are not that many doing what we're trying to do. I think there will be more over time. But when- for right now, we've got a great opening. We're going for it. When you're making a Civil War game versus a World War II game, uh, do you work any differently? Like, is it just, hey, you're making a game and there are different considerations? Does it feel different designing a game for the Civil War than for World War II? Yes, I think so. The audiences are a little bit different. Um, ah, can you, the, uh, can, you, can you address that? What, what's different about the audiences? Yeah. Um, the, you know, the, the Civil War is... Is very popular in America. It's extremely popular here. Oh, right. World right. War II has a more global following. <laughs> That's one difference. But there are other differences. The the um, World War II people are very interested in. Um, a lot of them are very interested in the hardware of the of the warfare. You know, the different kinds of ships and tanks, and they're sort of heart into the hardware kind of interests. And whereas in the Confederate in, in the um, in the uh, Civil War side, you have people that really care about the, the individual, you know, the units, the playing pieces, and you got to get the you got to get them right, you know. And we, at SPI, they used to refer to these people as order of battle freaks. You know, you get these letters from guys who would say, "Look, I think that the Seventh Louisiana should have been a seven string point unit, and not a six. And he could have been right. I mean, that's the kind of things people care about the the details of the of the actual who was who was. They're doing what is really important, and that's that's the case with people that are into Napoleonic games too. In, in fact, I would say the Napoleonic folks are the most fanatical in this regard of all uh, war gamers. Uh, just the details, because they get down to the uniforms, they get down to the 
like the counters have got to have the right color scheme for their the buttons on these guys have to be gold. I mean, it just, it just goes crazy. So as a designer, you keep in mind um, what level of detail you want to put in. For example, um, in a Civil War game, it's important that the people be able to control the pieces at the right at the appropriate level. So in the case of my game, we're doing it at the division level. So as a commander, you feel like you're in command of a, a fairly high-level group of, 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 of units. And then when they get down into combat, it works very similar to Bulge in that the combats execute. You sort of line, you get your guys in the right place at the right time, and then they execute the, the, uh, the attacks. So, yeah, so I think they're, they're, they're related, but they're different. There's different, subtle differences. I, I was never interested myself personally much in the sort of um, modern games, so that where you're speculating on what what happens in the future. And those, to me, I like the history side. Mm-hmm. So, and I think that's one thing about our company that makes us unusual too is we take the history side very, very um, seriously. So that's why we put in so much effort into it in, in Bulge, and we're going to do the same thing on uh, Gettysburg. Uh, the the uh, Bruce's. Bruce's reason that he likes playing Civil War games, and Bruce backed me up on this, is that he never doesn't get to play as America. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's ex- that's that is true, uh, and I don't think that I think that's the basically the the uh, selling point for all uh, Civil War games. Uh, I, I'm 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 fascinated by your comment about the Napoleonics and the. Um, and the uniforms, and the, I, I found that Napoleonic games, I don't think it's really a, a, a shock that Bowen Simmons' uh, sort of radical departure into the wooden uh, pieces that look like in you know 18th century or 19th century um, battle map happened with Napoleonics. Um, and uh, I think that there's a, a similar kind of thing in the Civil War games, uh, especially because a lot of people are, you know, there's the whole reenactor population, mm-hmm. isn't there? I mean, yeah. how, what, how much overlap do you feel there is between that and, and, and gaming? Um, I've, I've known a couple of reenactors that were um, that were both gamers and reenactors. I think I think the um, I think there's a little overlap. Um, I think that there's not much, uh, but there's a little. There's certainly the overlap is the interest in the in the topic. Um, I would be I think the odds of a, a reenactor being a gamer are higher than a gamer being a reenactor, but there's some overlap. Uh, Bruce does do cosplay though, just so just so you know. So he does go in that direction. Uh, I. Uh, so, Eric, pretend that, you know, I actually have a very general knowledge of the Civil War. Like, I think most folks know that, that Gettysburg was where uh, Robert E. Lee sort of lost momentum and the, this idea that he was a juggernaut who couldn't be stopped, like holes were poked in that after Gettysburg. Uh, I think you even call the subtitle of the game is, uh, is it the turning point? The Did tide turns. The tide turns, right, thank you. Uh, beyond that, though, uh, tell me, pretend that I know nothing about the Battle of Gettysburg, and tell me what specific, what are some unique features of that battle that you can use to make a cool game? Oh, well, the the, the critical um, point is very simple. It's a meeting engagement, so you start with this large battlefield, uh-huh. and there's essentially nobody there. And the, the sides march on, and they keep marching on for, for turn after turn after turn, more and more pieces come on so the game starts very and that's one of the great things about Gettysburg games 
is they start off very simply. You just have a few pieces there, and then more and more people come. So that's uh, it's a very large battle with it, but it starts off very small and just gets bigger and bigger and more complicated. In fact, I was there just last week on the third. Uh, 150th anniversary, and I had a five-and-a-half-hour tour by a professional tour guide there. And we were up on the top of a little round top, and he, he pointed out, he said, you see this? From this from this point of view, you can see the entire battlefield. It's two, two miles across and three miles long. He said, over three days, 160,000 people were in this two-by-three-mile area. <laughs> And to put that into, and he said, and to put that into con- uh, context, we had 160,000 troops at our height in Iraq. That's actually the number that came to mind. The moment you said that number, that's the figure I thought of as well. <laughs> that's astonishing. So, yeah. so that, that's another thing about Gettysburg. The scale of it is, is, is unusual. And, but I think that, you know, there's a bunch of things that are very unusual about Gettysburg, but it could have gone either way too. It's a, it's, it's an easy, it's an easy game to balance because it's really, you don't have to make any any rules that that hamper one side because George McClellan was leading the army and he wouldn't he'd only use half his army. You know, you don't have to make <laughs> rules like that. Because uh, so. that was a big feature of Battle of the Bulge. It seems like you guys baked into the the basic rules a lot of historical flavor uh, that had to do with the balancing and the structure of the Battle of the Bulge. Uh, are you free of having to do much of that with Gettysburg? Is no, you. Well, in some ways, yes, in some ways, no. You, the history comes in uh, each each time you have a playing piece uh, in, in Gettysburg. A playing piece is going to have a strength, which, like in like in Bulge, they have a strength strength points, mm-hmm. but they also have a morale rating, and the morale rating is used on many many uh, aspects in the game, where the uh, you know if you take a if you take a hit, you know if you make a morale check, and if you fail the morale check. Um, you know, it becomes a, a loss, an actual loss of strength. If, if you don't, then it just becomes a demoralization of a strength point. So the, the units get, get worn away by getting demoralized as hits are inflicted upon them. Also, you know, mor- the morale rating is used for combat. The higher, higher morale, the more likely you are to actually inflict damage. So it's got, um, a lot of, um, uh, history built into the, the values there that, that are used, um, in the game system. So, yeah, I think I think the game, um, like Bulge, has has a good a good designer. There's, well, this is another thing I learned um, at SPI, especially from Redmond and Jim. I think it was probably Redmond that really um, made this point. He said that the 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 most sophisticated games and the most the best games actually make their their what they're telling you about the history is actually embodied in the sequence of play itself. What, what he meant by that was, okay, back before Across Five Aprils came out, every Civil War game before that had been all the Union pieces move and then all the Confederate pieces move, which meant that it was very easy to do perfect planning. And no Civil War battle ever worked with perfect planning. It was complete malarkey. So I said, no, we're going to do, you don't know when your guys are going to move. You have to manage the army the way that the generals didn't have radios, right? They couldn't you couldn't say, you know, you go move those down there and, 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 and call me when you get to that telephone pole two miles down there. It's not the way it works. You know, you had to send a guy on horseback, you know, running down there to tell him what to do. Um, so, so the sequence of play actually builds in the history. So that's what a really good game does, uh, is actually embody, um, history in its, in its mechanics. 
And I'm fascinated to hear you describe the the way you're doing this randomized uh, movement of units, and you you never know when the actual combat round is going to occur. Um, Part of me thinks, oh, that could be incredibly frustrating. But then part of me remembers, too, and this, this is more to the point where I where I think, yeah, that sounds like a cool system. In, in Battle of the Bulge, there was this idea that the day could end and you don't know when it's going to end. Yeah. That each time you took a yeah. move or an attack, a variable slice of time would get eaten yeah. up, and you're never sure how much time you're going to have in the day. And if someone was to describe that to me, I would think, oh, that would be incredibly frustrating. Um, but, but did you ever think that, that that's just how it was, so that's just how it has to be? Well, with it. See, that's the thing, though. The bulge thing, that seems more abstract to me. Like, that just seems a little crazy that if I move my little infantry group from one hex to another, it can take zero minutes or 160 minutes. You know, that's that's crazy. I love what it does for the gameplay mechanics. I can't quite wrap my head around what it's trying to replicate. But w- when Eric talks about, you know, you don't know when you're going to get an initiative, you don't know when you're going to get to move, but, oh, you, you're going to change that a little bit when, when Lee arrives on the first day, for instance. Like, I can really see the historical... I can really see what you're getting at with that. And, well, also, and, it's very important on the bulge. That's, the bulge thing is not just doing it by day. Because remember, if you read the rules in bulge... The, the increment, the increments change as the game goes on. The, 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 like at the first day, the, um, a given turn can take up to two hours. What is that representing? That's representing the fact that the traffic three hours, well, right? Three hours. That's because there are traffic jams everywhere. And so the day on, on the first day lasts a shorter time. By the time you get out to the 25th, that's changed. So what does it mean? The Americans get to do more. It's a very sophisticated design. In fact, when all of us, you know, game designers, you know, I'm, I'm like, John Butterfield is is one of the best game designers in the entire world, and a dear friend of mine. But he does things like that, and it's a very sophisticated thing he did with that. It does it does so many things with such a small little design element. And when I saw it, I was like, wow, that is so amazing. It's a very um, uh, elegant way to simulate the fact that the weather clears and suddenly the days are longer for the Allies. But there's no rules that make that happen. It's just actually built into the sequence of, of that one little section. Helps simulate all these things that are going on in history. And you feel it, right? If you're the, if you're the Axis player in the Bulge game, and it starts getting around the 24th, it feels like every day is lasting. Right, like, right. Oh, please, please let it be over, right? right? But some people don't really realize why that's happening. I found it. Right. How do you feel about the fact that, you know, you wrote a great rule book for that game? Yeah, yeah. And I find that most things, I mean, not most things, I mean, pretty much everything in that rule book is pretty straightforward. And if you just read, if you have a question, you read it and um, you get your answer. But I found so many times that people will, uh, they sort of learn the rules from observing the system yeah. and then wonder, why certain things happen, you know, they'll say, well, how come I can't cross this bridge? Or, you know, how come I could cross this bridge? But they never look at the, it seems to me that they never look at the rule book, or they rarely look at the rule book. Do you think that that's a, a different kind of, uh, of player, a different audience that isn't really interested in, in looking at what's been written down and just wants to experience it by, by you know, sort of empirically? Well, I've, I'll answer this question a little bit out of the way. way. So I've, I've been... You know, spent twenty last twenty five years designing software. I've always been a lead designer and analyst for software. And early research that I did on doing manuals and documentation back in the late eighties uh, indicated that, as best as Xerox could figure out and IBM could figure out, 
less than 10% of the, of the audience um, ever actually read the manual to any great degree. 25% of the people didn't, didn't, you know, read the manual at all, never. And in the middle was, you know, different amounts of, oh, my gosh, I can't figure something out, so I just use it as a resource. So there's a lot of, there was a, I was, I was influenced by that. We've all been influenced by that to say that the, the manual is really, really important for certain people. It's not important at all for, for, for most people because they learn by, they learn intuitively. That's just, it's a learning style. Now, I am a guy that actually likes to, I read rule books for fun. Like I have on my iPad, I think I'm reading four or five different rule books right now. I just do it for fun. I read, yeah. I read six, eight different, you know, I read hundreds of pages of rules every, every year just for fun. I don't even have to play the games. I can play the games in my mind by yeah. reading the rule books. Yep. But that, I'm on the extreme side. But in our game, so the, the Battle of the Bulge and in Gettysburg, the Tide Turns, what you'll find is you don't need to read the rule book at all to play it. But as you play it more, you'll go, oh, what's going on? Why, what's happening with this road thing? Why am I not being able to move three, three spaces again anymore? You go, oh, the air power's come and the, the Germans no longer have control of the roads behind their own lines. Oh, I understand it. And, and I think it, I think we put the entire rule book in there. I don't know why all game companies don't do that, but we, Tasha was just the most natural thing to do because some of us really like to read rule books and, really want to know what's going on. Bruce Bruce is an extreme case. Man, you know, he, he wants to know the exact percentages of, you know, it's 43% chance if you cross it here. And, you know, and I'm, I don't go to that level. Yeah, well, I mean, I think I think that, that what is happening is that I really want to win. So, <laughs> but, uh, yeah. I mean, I think that the great thing about the game is that, uh, you know, it gives you clear choice about Bulge, and it's it gives you clear choices. If you understand the system, you know, you know, if I do this, I have this chance of doing something. I have this. I'm taking a risk of this thing happening. You know, if I if um, you know the day doesn't end, then somebody may uh, you know cut these guys off. But if I get the la- if this is the last impulse, then I'm going to get a double move. Um, there are all sorts of things that um, are that's clear. a very the one you just mentioned there is one that. I, I didn't realize for a long time the, the implications of a double move that can come. The playtesters are the ones that I'm, I'm not. I'm a mediocre player. Um, I always I used to be good when I was a teenager, but most game designers are not very good players because they get mm. they want to just try stuff, you know, right. try. Right. Stuff. But you know, the more I played Bulge, I thought I got to thinking I was pretty good at it until I you know, encountered some people that knew that particular maneuver and went, "Whoa, double move!" <laughs> yeah. But right. again, you can you can figure it out if you if you want to. You can learn it to that level. Uh, Eric, something else that alarms me. Uh, you were talking about zooming in and out uh, on on Gettysburg. Uh, one of the unique appeals for Battle of the Bulge is how well-suited it is to the iPad's screen real estate. Yeah. So I hear you saying now that you're doing Gettysburg uh, for the iPad, but also an iPhone version. Um how much should I be worried about it not feeling like it was made exclusively and only and specifically and lovingly for my iPad? Well, it's designed for the iPad, um, period. The, the iPhone we look at, look at as a, an adjunct, essentially, for those who play on Game Center. And by the way, audience out there, if you're not playing Bulge on Game Center, by all means, go do it. That's where it really sings. So it's an, it's an adjunct, um, and it's obviously a compromise. Bulge was designed from the beginning to fit into that real estate, and it actually is fortunate that it does. But there are other 
battles that we're looking at that do not have that kind of aspect ratio naturally to them. So, and also we've, from the very beginning, we've always assumed that we can do games that are beyond the, that you can have scrolling because on the iPad you can scroll so fast. And you can do smart scrolling where you know, the unit's activated, the map auto-scrolls to where it's located, things like that. Because that was always my big problem with computer board war, uh, computer wargaming, that I, it was all mouse-clicking and you know, yep. scrolling around, and I just I couldn't Painful. stand it. I just couldn't take it. So I never really played those games very much. I just literally couldn't tolerate it. And we think we're, we we're going to get past that um, and easily, I think. Uh, uh, games... Uh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, oh, I was just... I wanted to, to just follow up on the fact that you said you're looking at other games that may not have the same aspect ratio, um, but you're doing more than that. You're looking, you're asking your audience what they, you know, which games they would like. Because I just got, yes. uh, I got an update from Kickstarter, which was a survey uh, yes. that uh, asked me a whole bunch of questions about which games I would like, and uh, the yes. one that the, the, the reply that has uh, got to have it uh, for all the Eastern Front. Um, Scenario uh, situations. That's from me, um, but uh, but t- talk a little bit about how you know what the balance is between you know what you how much you want to make a game because people want it and and be, and how much you want to make a game because you think you could make an interesting game out of it. Well, um, again, we're very much informed by our experience at, at SPI Simulations Publications. They had an incredible survey system where they surveyed their audience every issue of the magazine and let people vote on what they wanted. And you wrote a description. You voted on it, and you know if it's scored over a seven, then SPI would publish it. If it's scored between six and seven, it'd be on the edge. And and if if a game designer and a company advocated for it, you could it could get published. If it scored less than a six, it just wasn't going to get published. And that led to a lot of really great games uh, being published. Now there was an exception: if the game scored below six, and Jim Dunnigan wanted to do the design, then then he would do what he called an editor's choice. And he would design the game and publish it anyway. So you'd end up with these innovative games like, you know, SPI football and inside, you know, Hitler's brain and other, some other strange things that, uh, were editors choice. And there were other editors choices that turned out to be super successful. Um, now, didn't so- Campaign for North Africa, wasn't that a high scoring game that ended up being? <laughs> not yeah. So good? Yeah, well, that's another one's worth a lot of money, so don't don't uh, don't oh, throw I've your copy it. away. I've don't throw it. your copy away. I sold yeah. mine for three hundred fifty dollars. Wow. Um, <clears throat> anyway, so we 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 believe in this uh, audience participation, and we're very pleased. We've gotten over three hundred replies just in the first few hours of, since we launched that um, that uh, a campaign to to query our audience, and we haven't even gotten the press releases out yet. So the you know it's we're very very pleased, and we're we're seeing really interesting results. So we will, you know, we're going to be informed by those, and we're going to make choices based on what the audience wants to see. It's interesting. The early voting is the number one is D-Day. Um, oh God! But, no, but, no, no. It's more interesting <laughs> than that. Okay. It's, it's 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 the it's the it's the highest rated one the most, and it's the lowest rated also. So, I know which only, side of that one I fall on. The, Lowest rated in what sense? What do you mean? I mean, the, the, we we ask people to to vote one game that they that they want the most, and one game they want the least, and then rate all ten with a one to five. <laughs> yep. So D Day is both the most and the least. That's awesome. Isn't that funny? I hope you're going to publish this data when you're done with it. Yeah, we will. We'll be rolling it out onto our onto our blog and sharing with people. It's really fascinating. It's, you know, the 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 um. The number of people that have emailed me personally already and said, look, 
I want all these, but here's my ratings. Just publish all of them. Uh, you know, <laughs> it's been very gratifying to. I've got a dozen or so um, personal emails in from people. That, Interesting. And I've also gotten some emails where people are giving me very argumentative, like this is why this should be the first one. You know, this. Oh, you know, right. this why it'll be so great, and this is how you should do it. And oh, you know, yeah. fantastic. Those, those are grognards for you, Eric. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, Eric, I know you've got a train to catch in a little bit, but before we let you go, uh, I want to ask you about uh, your, your pick for Game of the Week. But uh, for listeners, uh, it's on Kickstarter. The game is called Gettysburg, The Tide Turns. Um, go there, support it. But you can read more about what Eric has in mind. You can see a lovely video of Eric standing. What was that at Gettysburg, Eric? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, so uh, check that out. Um, now, uh, Eric, if I was to ask you, Eric Lee Smith, what is your game of the week? What mm-hmm. would you pick? My pick would be The Big Idea by J- James Ernest, who uh, is a designer for Cheap-Ass Games. And uh, The Big Idea has been published by uh, a French game company, I think. It's available in America. Uh, current publisher is Arclight. And it's a fun little card game where you... you, you um, have six cards in your hand, three kind of descri- descriptions and three, three, three downs, three verbs kind of thing, and you uh-huh. you create an in- invention and you you describe the invention to the other players. Say there's four players, and they and then they everybody secretly votes, and you get to one vote for the best invention, and then three no votes, <laughs> and and you do six rounds, and the person that loses the least um, wins. Not the one who gets the the most win votes. It's the one who gets the least no votes mm. wins. It's a lot of fun. It's a really it's a party game. It's really very funny. I was going to say I this like, sounds. I, like I, that, I love the fact, Eric, that uh, here you are, serious war game designer, uh, picking for your game of the week. What sounds like a, a rather precious party game. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a precious party game. I, I love I love party games. I love. I have a group of of non grognards that I get together with. We play. We play games like Big City, which is one of my absolute favorites, and Settlers of Catan, and, you know, uh, Hey, That's My Fish. And you know, well, I, I noticed that you, Eric, are on record as not hating. Bruce is like this, too, and I, I don't get it. You're on record as not hating Ticket to Ride. Oh, no, I like Ticket to Ride. Mm. Um, I, I, I know that some people don't like the game, but I, I like it a lot. I play that one pretty pretty frequently. I'm a fan. Well, yeah. here's, here's, why, here's how I how I think of Ticket to Ride. I I tell people, my friends that are not gamers, I say every year in Germany, France, and Italy, there are published 10 games a year that are better than any game you ever played growing up. And I said, Ticket to Ride, if it had existed back in 1938, would have been the modern-day Monopoly. It's so much better than Monopoly. Um, and it's it's a great a great family game, a great... You know, a great introductory game to a little bit of ge- you know geography, mm-hmm. and it has just great. Uh, it has great opportunities for house rules like Monopoly does, and so I, I yeah, I'm a fan of that game. I, I I know that some people don't like it, but I I do. Uh, Bruce will tell you that in order to play it right, you have to memorize all the root <laughs> Oh yeah, you got to do that. Yeah, you got to play it right or don't play it at all. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> See, but I'm not a player like I'm not a player like that. <laughs> well, all right, so. Yeah, I want to Bruce. point out just to, to, as far as the big idea goes, I just went to its board game geek page to just get a little idea. It says, you know, it's a big idea is a quick and easy card game where the players represent venture capitalists creating companies, uh, and then you have nouns and adjective, adjective cards. And the two examples that they use are mentholated chicken and erotic pants. <laughs> 
So that's yeah. that's what that's what you got there. You know, I I have a copy of Apples to Apples here. If you guys just want to come over, we can just play that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Bruce, what would you pick for your game of the week? So uh, my game of the week is actually a game uh, which has a great name called Red Menace. And what? It, it is. <laughs> what is this? <laughs> yeah, it's a solitaire game published by White Dog Games, and. Um, the, that's the website is White Dog Google Games, so you have to make sure that the, the both G's are pronounced, otherwise you'll never get there. Um, and it's basically a, uh, a solitaire game in which you play the United States uh, Strategic Air Command in around 1959. And the choice of doing that is um, means that you don't really have intercontinental ballistic missiles. You have a game in which the Soviets attack, or you attack the Soviets, and it's basically played with bombers and oh. interceptors. Dr. Strangelove. Yeah, kind of, exactly. Yes, uh, I'm sure that they got a lot of uh, a, a lot of inspiration from that. Now, the game system, I'm, I have to say, I like the game concept a little bit more than the than the game execution. Um, but I, I like what they did. You sort of just have this these waves of it's almost like uh, you know Space Invaders. You have um, you have these waves of Soviet bombers that just sort of come over the ice cap. And uh, you have to shoot them down uh, while you're launching your own bombers. And, and uh, White Dog Games, sorry, White Dog Giga Games, um, has uh, uh, they really went out of their way to make very uh, a very high quality game. The counters are really, they've, you know, a lot of these uh, independent game publishers are not uh, going to these um, uh, laser cut counters. They're very thick. Uh, it really the whole the whole um, product is very nicely designed with a lot of attention to you know to quality. Um, I think it has some problems, uh, but I'm thinking that those problems may be solved by some uh, house rules. Um, but in any case, uh, if you want to play a, a solitaire game in which uh, Soviet uh, Tupolev bombers uh, come over the ice cap and bomb Seattle, and you have to shoot them down and send uh, B-52s. Uh, into the Soviet Union. It also has my favorite uh, aircraft, the B-58 Hustler. Um, Then I should get that game. Uh, Bruce, can I play as the Russians? Uh, You cannot, because no one would want to play as the Russians. Oh, rats. You wouldn't want to do that. That would be like playing a World War II game as the Germans. Oh, wait a minute. Oh, hold on. I don't get it. Okay. Anyway, there you go. All right, Red Menace. As a matter of fact, I think you showed me this, and I just forgot it was called Red Menace, because that sounds like a... Uh, it, it, I, that's that's a boring title. Like, what is a terribly generic title? Red oh, Menace. Yeah. That could be a shooter. Yeah, or it could be a uh, some sort of um, you know uh, reefer madness game. Yeah, exactly. It's a, it's propaganda, but have the so yeah. I, I'm not right. interested. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, well, I wasn't gonna. I was actually gonna do this regardless of you guys being here. But my game of the week is also actually a board game that I thought was going to be a solitaire game. I was wrong. Uh, There's a company called Victory Point Games. They made Nemo's War, which Bruce and I played. Uh, They also made a really cool zombie game called Dawn of the Zeds, which is solitaire. Nemo's War and Dawn of the Zeds are both solitaire. So they had another game I was interested in the theme of it, the the, the subject matter I'd never seen in a game before. Uh, So I thought it was solitaire. They just re-released a second version of it with with uh, boosted production values. It's part of their Gold Banner series. Mm-hmm. Uh, I broke it open. I read the rules and was discovered there's there's basically a solitaire variant in it, but it's very much a game for two to five players. So this game is called Circus Train, and it's about managing a circus in the Prohibition era United States. 
Uh, and what you and the other players are doing is assembling a group of circus acts. Like you have so many trapeze artists, you have so many clowns, you have maybe have elephants, which are super expensive, and you're carting them around a map of the United States by playing cards that control your movement, uh, that control how often you can put on performances and hire new performers. And you've got these nine cards that you have to cycle before you can use them again. And one of them is a card that says, hey, pay everyone wages. So what you've got to do is manage your hand as to how many cards you're going to play before you have to play this horrible pain-in-the-ass wages card and basically lose all your money. Uh, and there's some great tricks with blocking other people. There are events that come up. Um, I've only played it with two players so far. Uh, tonight I'm having folks over. Bruce and Eric, you're both invited. Uh, come on over and we'll, we'll play some Circus Train. We'll see how it plays with, with more than two. Uh, but I love the theming of it. Can I ask you a question? Can you play as the anti-Circus forces? Uh, let's see. That you can, you can, Your Circus, Bruce, is in fact an anti-Circus force against everybody else's circus. Oh, so yes, you can, because uh, you don't want them to succeed. Uh, and I love, too, it has this cool scoring dynamic where, of course, like, like many games, you're playing for victory points. But what you're really trying to do and where you mostly get the victory points is you've got a separate track that shows you the best performance you have ever done, the best circus you ever put on. Uh, and this involves basically meeting a town's demands. Like, you have to be uniquely suited. Like, there's maybe a town that really loves clowns. So you want to bring your super great troop of clowns to St. Louis when they really want clowns. And then you're going to get this stratospheric performance score. And you're tracking your highest performance score over the course of the game. So it's all about everybody running around, trying to put on a great show, and then uh, moving that reputation forward for victory points. Um so uh, that's my game of the week. It's part of Victory Point Games' Gold Banner series. It's available uh, as of, I think, two weeks ago. Um, and if you come on over tonight, you can join me, Bruce, and Eric uh, in, in a little circus train. Perfect. We'll be there. There you go. All right. Uh, Eric, again, congratulations on the Kickstarter. Uh, I'm elated to hear that Battle of the Bulge was very successful for you guys. Um, and uh, tell those guys working on El Alamein to uh, hurry up. Yes, we'll do. <laughs> uh, thank you for listening. Uh, this has been the Quarter to Three Games podcast. Join us here next week. And uh, Bruce, thanks for uh, coming out to join us as well. My pleasure. So uh, there's that. Uh, everyone, I hope you're having a good July, and we'll see everyone here next week.